This morning we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 4, if you'll make your way there in the Bible. And we have come as far as verse 16. Each Gospel of the New Testament was written for a purpose. The writer had an objective in mind when he first decided to write the accounts in which he does concerning the person of Jesus Christ. For example, if you read John's gospel, he focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ and that you may believe that he is the Savior that has come into this world. When it comes to Luke's gospel, he tells us very clearly that he is writing this to an individual named Theophilus. Theophilus was a Greek man who was wealthy, and he had Luke in his personal staff Uh, That's the way physicians were uh, dealt with in that culture. You didn't have like a village physician. Normally, physicians were in the servitude of wealthy individuals, which Theophilus apparently was. We have little on him in extra biblical literature, who he then became a Christian and allowed Luke to travel with the disciples, Paul and Peter, to help them with their physical ailments. And as a result, we find that Luke now is writing Theophilus back and he desires that Theophilus has a methodical account of all that Jesus Christ has done and accomplished in his three years of ministry here on this earth. Now this is actually uh, volume one of a two-volume set for Luke then writes the book of Acts. The book of Acts spans over a 30-year period of time And Luke then, as one companion with the disciples, gives an eyewitness account of many of the incredible things that happened at the hands of the apostle after the ascension of Jesus Christ. But concerning the gospel of Luke, he said very clearly to Theophilus, I am writing to this to you that you may have certainty in the things that God through Christ. Certainty is a big word. My daughter was home from college this weekend. I, I, I bought my wife for Valentine's Day, a college student. I left the price tag on her, though, because we couldn't afford her, and we returned her the next day. But as a result, we were discussing over dinner how to understand and discern what is true and what is false. And it is a subject that is being greatly debated today in our colleges. How can we know that something is true or not? How can we be certain of that truth? If the individual doesn't experience it for themselves, how can they be certain of secondhand knowledge? And of course, that led into a discussion and so forth. And so Luke, predicating it upon the graciousness of Theophilus and his newfound faith in Jesus Christ, Luke then tries to uh, repay Theophilus, I believe, in a sense, by uh, stating to him, now, Theophilus, I want you to know all that Jesus has done, that you may learn and grow from these things. Luke himself was a Gentile. As a physician, he focused on the humanity aspect of Jesus Christ. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, the only individual ever to walk on that earth in this state. And as a result, there is a great mystery about his deity and about his Uh, natural aspects. Of course, we know he was sinless and he was perfect. We know that he uh, did uh, experience temptation but never fell into that temptation. We know that he was hungry, he slept, and so forth. So he did 
have to exercise a degree of self-control over his bodily appetites. So you have this unique dimension of relationship between his humanity and his deity. And Luke is saying, now, Theophilus, I want to give you a detailed account so that you may be certain. And that's exactly what it means in the Greek, that you can have certainty over those things. Now, you say, well, we're reading this from 2,000 years removed. How can we have that same certainty today? We can have the same certainty today based on Luke's gospel because of the fact that Luke's gospel was written 30 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ, meaning that there were people still living who fully remembered the the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, who fully remember the ascension, fully remember uh, the apostles' work in the book of Acts and so forth. And as a result, he could write this with certainty, knowing that the facts of it would be confirmed by those who had also seen these things. So my argument for the certainty that it brings to you and I today is that if they were certain of it back then, the Holy Spirit has confirmed it through the inspiration that he has given this book to us, we too can be certain of these things today because the certainty hasn't changed just because we're 2,000 years removed. Try to say that 10 times fast. And one of the fascinations that Luke had was the fascination of the demonstrated to Gentiles after the Jewish people rejected him as the Messiah. Paul tells us very clearly in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans that this rejection has led to a partial hardening so that the fullness of the Gentiles may be fulfilled. The church may be birthed, and in the church you have Jew and Gentile equal in the salvation that is provided in and through Jesus Christ. But then a time will come where he turns his attention back to the Jewish people, And that's clearly stated in Romans 11. But as we begin here in chapter 4, Jesus has now gone through 40 days of temptation that was concluded by three very specific temptations that we looked at last week together, which leads us to verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and reported about him Uh, A report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, in the Gospels, there's the issue of, are the events of the Gospels in chronological order, or have they been specifically chosen by the writer to bring about a cohesive understanding from beginning to end? That's a good question. Because the event that Luke now brings to our attention, his rejection in his own town of Nazareth, is also recorded for us in Matthew and Mark's gospel, but later on in their uh, writings. So either there were two events, or Luke decided from the very beginning to bring this event to the forefront, because it indicates for us very clearly why Jesus Christ came. His purpose for coming number one answer to that question today by Christians is that he came to die on the cross in three days to rise again. That's absolutely true. However, though, there is more to it than that. And he declares what he has been sent to do as he stands in the synagogue and reads from a specific portion of the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And after he reads it, he then declares that the 
prophetic fulfillment of these verses are happening right here and now before the eyes of those who are hearing this reading. And as a result, in it we have four very distinct purposes for why Jesus Christ came. Luke, I believe, shares this at the beginning because it demonstrates that the Jewish people were already positioning themselves nationally to reject him as Messiah. This came as no surprise to Jesus. It was fully understood before the foundations of the world that the Jewish people would uh, reject Jesus as their Messiah initially, uh, but then they will all gaze upon him who they have pierced and all Israel will be saved. However, though, as we come now to this fourth uh, chapter, his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up the majority of his life, he served as a carpenter within the community. A carpenter was more than one who just worked with wood. A carpenter would also be one who was working with metal, so he could have been the blacksmith also. Plowshares and, and horseshoes and so forth could also be produced by him in that culture. Carpenter was a much more broad term at that time. And so growing up with these people, he is now declaring openly that he is the Messiah in by claiming that the prophetic words of this passage have been fulfilled in their, in their hearing. Now, when I go home, my parents still live in the same house that I grew up in. There are still neighbors on the uh, street in which I grew up that remember me when, well, I'll just be honest, before I was a Christian. And they're still amazed at the fact that I am a pastor. And they have said often that I am the epitome of the grace of God. And I can understand the difficulty now Jesus is experiencing that you know, he is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and all these people grew up with Jesus from the very beginning. He already had a questionable birth. You know, the neighbors, you know, there's something going on with Mary and Joseph, the timing of Jesus' birth and their fulfillment of their marriage. It's just not all coinciding. And, you know, I, I, think, I, I think that there's a funny business going on. And then, oh, hi, Mary and Joseph. How are you? Good. I'm great. Yeah, there's something going on in that family. There's something happening. And then Jesus began to grow up, and undoubtedly he was unlike anyone else. I, we can only imagine his teenage years aren't really given attention in the Scripture but we know he was without sin. We know he had brothers and sisters that were born after him. Jesus being the older brother, it's kind of like growing up in the wake of John Boy Walton, who never could do anything wrong and so forth. Walton's was a TV show back in the 70s for those who were not born then. And uh, he obviously was very difficult to follow in many different ways. And now he is about to proclaim something that is just beyond imagination that he himself is the Son of God, God himself coming as the Messiah, as promised through the Old Testament prophecies. That, that would be hard to handle, right? That would be like me, I think, saying, and of course, if I were to say that I am the Messiah who came, I would expect each and every one of you to run as fast as you possibly could, because it would be a lie. Israel was such a mess at this time that they could never even imagine that the Messiah would choose that time to come. They had lost their sovereignty as a nation. They could no longer execute their own criminals. 
The religious leaders were so corrupt that the people looked at them with skepticism and, and contempt because they were meant to lead by example and they were anything but an example in which to be followed. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire. They didn't even have the ability to govern themselves. There was a foreign uh, nation of Gentiles governing them, and many then believed that God had cast them off. And therefore, uh, due to the fact that God had also been silent up until this point for 400 years since the prophet Malachi spoke. What a time for the Messiah to come. If that wasn't bad enough for the individuals at that time to identify Messiah, let us also take into consideration that the profile of the Messiah in which the religious leaders did give the laity of Judaism was so skewed and distorted from the actual portrayal, portrait of the uh, Messiah that the Old Testament does portray for them, that even if they saw him, they wouldn't recognize him by the profile given to them by the religious leaders. In fact, there was confusion because there was a portion of the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah suffering, and then there was a portion of the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah conquering. And they couldn't reconcile the two, not considering the fact that maybe he does the suffering on his first coming and his conquering on his second. Some believe that there was two messiahs, and the confusion went on and on and on. And so for the people just to show up on their Sabbath day, to come to their synagogue, to partake in the worship that that town, Nazareth was, a, they estimated about 12,000 people at that time. Uh, they came and there was probably one synagogue in the entire town. Jesus was reading from the scriptures, but now something had occurred. It's been a year between verses 15 and 16 that are outlined for us in John chapter 2, 3, and 4, that in Capernaum, some miracles had already taken place by the hand of Jesus. And we'll see this being referred or referenced here in our text in just a moment. So Jesus, which was completely common in that culture, He's being looked at and recognized in certain areas around Galilee as a rabbi. They would have seen him as a special guest, and therefore they would allow him to give the reading of that particular Sabbath day. This brings us to verse 16, if you'd like to jump in with us. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and that's Saturday, and uh, it was the last day of the week in the Jewish calendar, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, and then let us stop there for a moment. In, I discovered that in my study of Judaism, the Jewish synagogues at that time had a systematic methodology of reading through the Old Testament. And for them to be in the book of Isaiah would have landed on the calendar year sometime in the time of September. And it happened just at this particular time that Jesus perfectly uh, met the scriptures and was able to open it to the scripture in which he wanted to proclaim his coming 
And of course, you see a, a God-ordained uh, notion in all of that, undoubtedly. And so he begins to read from Isaiah 61. Now, in please don't imagine that Jesus got up there with his nicely bound Bible and so forth. It was a scroll, and he unrolled the scroll, and he came to the portion that we now know as Isaiah 61. We all realize that the chapters and numbers and verses are not inspired by God. They're simply to help us find things in the Bible. They're there to help us navigate. But often we can be misled by them if a perecope, that is one of those little headings, is um, in a position where it breaks the train of thought that the writer originally had. Because in the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in with some Aramaic passages also included, there is no punctuation. And so he comes to the point where he wants to begin to reveal himself to the people, and he does so by reading the prophecy given in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads and begins with, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 20, it says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And we'll stop there for a moment. In his reading, he undoubtedly read it in Aramaic, And as he was reading, he identifies himself with this portion of Scripture, which we'll see in just a moment. If we were to attend a a synagogue service, we would be met with the opening of the service with an invocation for God to bless their time together. They would then read what is considered a Hebrew confession of faith, such as Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today uh, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the, as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And this was the confession that they would read to the people That would be followed by a prayer and then the prescribed reading, which we just have heard Jesus proclaim, which here is Isaiah 61, and then there would be the teaching, the explanation. When the word of God was read in the synagogue, they would stand up, but when the teaching portion came, they would sit down. And that's what Jesus is indicating by him sitting down, that he is now going to follow the reading with a teaching, and this teaching is this. Look at it with me here in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all of this in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was the teaching portion of the synagogue. 
stating that what the prophet had prophesied would come has now come. It was a clear proclamation and declaration of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. This portion of Scripture in Isaiah by all the rabbis of that time and before was seen as a messianic prophecy that would one day be fulfilled by the Messiah himself. And Jesus is now saying, I have fulfilled this today, here and now. And in it, we once again are stressed that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Luke's desire is that we as individuals understand that Jesus Christ did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit here on his earthly ministry. There's a relationship between his deity and his humanity that we don't fully understand. I don't think we could and still be finite individuals. That's an infinite truth, I believe. But I believe it by faith that he was 100% man, 100% God. If God says it, I believe it. Well, that settles it, okay? But how does it work? Well, I don't know. But he did rely on the Holy Spirit, and Luke seems to indicate that often to encourage you and I that we can walk the Christian faith in the same power of the Spirit that was given to us the time we came and believed upon Christ. At that moment, the Spirit of God dwells within us and fills us to overflowing in those moments in time that we are in need of Him to do so. He's the anointed one. In Isaiah, there's a statement in Hebrew. It's called the Aved Yahweh. It is a statement meaning the servant of the Lord. Luke uses this often, and it's one of the greatest mysteries about the gospel of Luke and Acts because he uses it in Acts all the time also because he's so determined to show Jesus as a servant to the Gentile people, showing Jesus approachability, showing that Jesus was interested in common people like you and I, showing that he was unlike any other God who walked the earth. Because again, not that other gods have walked the earth, but in the Roman culture, just inundated by pagan thinking, many of the Greek gods morphed into Roman pagan gods since the empire followed one after another. And so they had a plethora of gods that were known for all different kinds of interaction with human beings. And I think Luke wanted to truly bring Jesus into a whole new light in the eyes of the, in the ears of the, uh, the readers and hearers that Jesus was a servant of the Lord, servant of the Father, the avid Yahweh, the one who anointed by the Lord. And because he has anointed me, he goes on to read, he has given me the tasks, and there are four. Now, in the New King James, Old King James, there's a fifth. He has come to bind the brokenhearted. This is what's called a textual variant. It is found in the manuscripts of the Byzantine text, which are later manuscripts from the 12th century, 14th and 15th, and even into the 16th in some areas. All of the earlier manuscripts do not indicate that that was part of Luke's gospel in the original intent. Uh, so that's why in the newer versions, to bind the brokenhearted is not found. That is, again, called a textual variant, and it is determined by the manuscript evidence in which we have. So let us look at the four that are given to us to proclaim the good news to the poor. Uh, 
Number two, that he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Number three, recovering of the sight to the blind. And number four, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We first must understand very clearly how the Jewish people interpreted words such as poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. What definitions did they have to these words? The reason I say that is because if we read the first of the four, he has come to proclaim the good news to the poor, we could solely reduce this to those who are economically poor. But in that culture, it is used in the same way that is used in the Sermon of the Mount for the poor in spirit. Those who see themselves bankrupt before God. Those who are outcast in their society. A poor person in the Jewish community was looked down upon because individuals believed, based on the curse of Deuteronomy 28, that these individuals had some in some way sinned against God. And they were being punished for their sin and their being poor was a reflection of that punishment. Of course, the same thing happened to those who were physically blind. Questions were asked in the gospel. Was it you who sinned or was it your father before you or so forth? Again, believing that it was some type of curse against them for these things. And Jesus clearly demonstrated that that was not the case. What happened was Deuteronomy chapter 28 was a promise that God made to the nation of Israel. He says, if you follow me and obey me, I'm going to bless you. And he gives the list of blessings. He then goes on, but if you disobey me and follow after other gods and do those things that I have commanded you not to do, these curses shall come upon you. However, though, what happened by this time is they took that national promise and began to apply it to individuals. What was supposed to be a promise to the national Israel as a nation as a whole began to be individualized. Therefore, people who were wealthy could say, I'm blessed of God. People who were poor could say, I'm possibly cursed by God. Jesus refutes this all throughout the Gospels. And once you notice this, you pick it up right away. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he has often said, you've heard this said, but now I say this, correcting the teaching of the time by the religious leaders and the reestablishing what God really meant from the beginning. The rich young ruler, remember he came to Jesus wanting to be saved? And Jesus said something very unique to him. Well, now keep all of these things of the Mosaic covenant of the Ten Commandments. And the young man says, I've done that from my birth. Is that true? Of course not. Then Jesus said, okay, well, if you've done all of that from your birth, now go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he couldn't do it. Now, the question from the disciples is very revealing after that. They said, well, if he can't be saved, then who can be? They believed that his wealth was an indication that he was blessed by God. But now Jesus is saying that has nothing to do with it. And he then goes on to say what's impossible with man is, always, is completely possible with God. But that was the thinking. That was the mindset. And Jesus says, I have personally come to proclaim the good news, the gospel, to those who are poor. 
the outcasts, those who society has thrown to the wayside, those who would not be accepted in social circles, those individuals that the society says are beyond the reach of God. These are the ones that I have come to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I shouldn't say it that way. The gospel of me, that sounds so bad, doesn't it? I don't know how Jesus would have phrased it, but he just says the good news to these individuals so that they may know that salvation is possible for them. Now again, think how this would cut across the Jewish mind and the thinking. What? The good news to them? And what did Jesus do? He went to the tax collectors, the sinners, the harlots, right? Just as he had promised that he would do. The second one also contains a word to bring and to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, what does it mean to be captive? Paul the Apostle develops the idea of captivity, and let me show you and explain to you how first it would have been interpreted as Roman captivity and the oppression that that empire was placing on the nation of Israel in general. But Jesus clearly is talking about it from a spiritual perspective, and he is talking about the captivity that one finds themselves in concerning their own personal sin. And Jesus says, I have, Jesus said that I have now come to proclaim freedom from the oppression and also from the captivity of sin in the individual person's life. Interesting verse, Colossians 2.8. Write this down if you like. You can read on your own. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by the philosophies and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. One of the ways that we can bring, be brought into captivity is not only through the bondages of sin, but also through the ideologies of the world. This is why Paul says we must bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. For it is not only a war for our hearts, but also a war for our minds. Paul said, you know, uh, very clearly in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I'd like to read that to you, if I may, because I think it speaks directly to what we are referring to when we talk about the issue of the mind. He says, I appeal therefore to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. For do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And how are we transformed? By the renewal of our mind, that we may, uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The ideologies of this world will bring us into a captivity also that are not rooted and grounded in Christ. Paul made it very clearly that these philosophies will cheat you and rob you from the life in which God would have for you. This is why we must be thorough students of the word of God, that we may understand the heart and the mind of God and therefore be able to see and to recognize the faulty reasoning of this world around us and not be brought into the captivity that it brings. This is huge, folks. 
The world thinks in a way that we just cannot relate to, doesn't it? For example, just two weeks ago, we showed you a video of individuals applying a late-term abortion bill being signed, right? How can we relate to that? I can't. How can I relate to certain religious individuals blessing abortion clinics on the same weekend that we're hosting the memorial to the Holocaust? How does that happen? And why does the world look at me in a way and say, what, don't you understand? It's, it's freedom for women and so forth, unless the baby's a girl, you know, and then it's a whole different story. Do you see that the thinking of this world is going in one direction and ours is going in another? And as we're sanctified and drawn farther out of this world, we look back into the world and say, I don't even recognize it anymore. We're not stating that we're any better than anyone else but we're stating that we don't think like the world thinks any longer. As we come to the third, we also find that he has now given recovery to the sight of the blind. And this is a theme throughout the Gospels themselves. The number of individuals that he gave sight to so that they may see. But he also states that he says that he has come to take sight from those who believe that they can see. Again, We see this pattern throughout the Gospels. Those individuals begging at the door of the temple, Jesus had one of them brought in. He heals them by spitting upon his hands and rubbing mud in that and then putting that on the eyelids of the individual so that they may see. I've never yet been invited to a mud ministry, have you? I'm waiting for churches to start replicating this also, you know. But uh, Jesus decided to heal in this way. He didn't heal in any one particular way because he wanted to show that it was him healing and not the methodology in which he healed an individual. But then when the religious leaders began to confront that individual, he then rebuked them. And he says to them very clearly, I've come to give sight to those who cannot see and take sight from those who say they can Religiosity will often be manifested by people who say they can see. Their self-righteousness will give them the thought that they have a sovereignty and the ability to see things spiritually, and often they are the most blind individuals themselves. Jesus clearly is speaking about a spiritual sight. And why does he talk about it in this nature? Because listen to what again Paul states as he's writing to Gentiles to clarify some of these statements in which Jesus made. He says very clearly, in their cases, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but it is Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul clearly states that a non-believer, an unbeliever, is blinded by the God of this world, Satan himself. Satan is also the author of those philosophies that will keep you in captivity and keep you away from God. And Jesus says very clearly that I will open your eyes. As being a Christian, I see things completely differently now than I did when I was a non-believer. And then he goes on for those who are oppressed. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word oppressed actually means crushed 
by life. It is those individuals who are not only oppressed by the Roman oppression that they are personally experiencing there at that time, but just the overwhelming aspects of life that are keeping them down. As he was speaking undoubtedly from the vantage point of also the oppression by the devil himself, again, not solely at the hand of the devil, but through the philosophies that the devil permeates throughout this world that would oppress the believer in Jesus Christ. The word oppress could be also mean to choke, to cause serious trouble with the implications of dire consequences in probably a weakened state, to cause severe hardship, to cause one to be overwhelmed, and ultimately, as A.T. Robertson said, to be crushed by life. Jesus says that I have come to proclaim to you. But he states it in a very interesting way that can be applied to each of the previous ones also. He wasn't simply a prophet proclaiming these things. He clearly was an individual who was able to do these things. I'm not saying that he's, he's not saying that it's going to be done by someone else. He's saying very clearly it is going to be done by me. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor as he concludes. There was an anticipated time in the Jewish calendar, the year of Jubilee, where everyone was released from economic uh, commitments and everything would revert back to original owners and so forth. It was meant the acceptable time. This was the time in which people waited for. Jesus is saying, this is the time. This is the day of salvation, as, as it is uh, clearly stated in other places throughout Scripture. This is the time, he is saying. Now is the time. And it has been that time for the last 2,000 years that this time has come for people to embrace Jesus as the Son of God, to experience eternal life in Him and so forth, and to be renewed by Him, to be uh, filled beyond uh, comparison. So He's no longer, again, poor in the sense of poor socially and poor um, spiritually that he is now freed from captivity, that he is now, his sight has been given to him and he's no longer oppressed. This is the time for these things to take place because there's another day coming, which we'll talk about in a moment. Jesus stopped reading at a very specific point in the prophecy because the remainder is still yet to come in another day that will uh, take the earth by storm, and that is the day of his return and his judgment. And of course, then in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, this statement is more than them just simply acknowledging, hey, isn't this Joseph's son, the one that came into the world suspiciously? You know, the timing didn't line up right. She, she gave birth very early, but he was, you know, just didn't all work out. Oh, hi, Joseph and Mary. How's Jesus doing? Yeah, something really wrong with that family. It's amazing to me that this statement is 
isn't this Joseph's son? Because whose son was this prophecy declaring? The Avid Yahweh, the Messiah, the Son of God. Who would come through the lineage of David? Which both Luke and Matthew clearly demonstrate that Joseph and Mary both came through the lineage of David. They were challenging what he was about to say simply by saying, isn't this simply just Joseph's son, a carpenter's son? How could he be anything more, let alone the fulfillment of this particular prophecy? The rejection was already being manifested within them. And Jesus said to him, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Well, what does that mean? What we have heard you, you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. The reference means they wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to see a sign. This is something Jesus condemned from the, this point on throughout his ministry to the Jewish people. They were always seeking a sign, right? Another sign, another sign. Jesus finally said no sign will be given than that of the prophet Jonah. Paul went on to say that the Jews seek after the sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we've come and proclaimed Christ to you. Jesus is saying, no doubt you're going to ask me to perform some kind of sign and miracle to verify who I am. That's what he is saying within this statement. What you did in Capernaum, do here also. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he gives two examples from the Old Testament, one from Elijah and one from Elisha, where Israel was under condemnation by God due to their rebellion against him, and prophets were sent to Gentiles, rather to them, to minister to them. And so this text might be confusing to you and I, but to them, they fully understood it, and we can determine that by their reaction to what was said. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zephyrah in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Because of Israel's rejection, the prophet was sent to the Gentiles. In verse 27, the same happened to Elijah. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian, twice. Israel, because of your rejection, God then turned to the Gentiles. And you see where Luke is going with this. He's going to show and demonstrate to Theophilus in whom he's originally writing to that this is why God has turned his graces to the Gentiles because of the Jewish initial rejection to Jesus Christ. Them fully understanding what this meant went on to state in verse 28, when they heard these things and all the synagogues were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the borrow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their mist, he went away. They understood what Jesus was saying here. Now, the question is for you and I, did Jesus substantiate through his life ministry everything that he proclaimed to be sent to do here 
in verses 18 and 19, and we would have to say with a resounding, yes, he did. The Gospels clearly indicate that all that he was sent to do, he fulfilled. And that the Jewish people ultimately rejected him, the religious leaders and so forth, though many at that time believed in him and were saved, yet the nation itself rejected him. And though they wanted to kill him at this time, undoubtedly his time had not yet come, for he was still set to go to the cross. Warren Worsby wrote this, and I, I love this statement. He says, They love the truth when it enlightens them, but they hate the truth when it accuses them. That is so true of many of us also, including myself sometimes. As he went on to write, he said, In spite of the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, the scripture declares Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. This is the Messiah sent to fulfill the promises. The people who did not want him to and who rejected the acceptable year of the Lord will one day face the day of vengeance of our God. How significant that Jesus stopped reading at that very place. If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 61, I want to show you where Jesus stopped, if I may. In Isaiah 61, he read up to a very specific and purposed point. But there is a remainder of verse 2 that he excluded from his initial reading. The acceptable year of the Lord's favor is where he stopped in verse 2 of 61. And then he went on to say that the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beauty, beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garments of the spirit of praise instead of a faint spirit. These things he will accomplish in his second coming. This is the opportunity, this is the time to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. For a day is coming where God will hold the world accountable for its sin and all of its unrighteousness and injustice. And God is saying that he sent Jesus in his first advent riding on a donkey, which means he comes in peace and desiring a relationship with those in whom he interacts with. And yet they rejected him. And after the rejection, Jesus stood outside Jerusalem, looked down upon it, began to weep, and he said, you did not know the day of your visitation, and you were unwilling to come to me, positioning them for the judgment in which was still yet to come. They fully could have come, but they chose not to come. You were unwilling to come to me, he said. This is the opportunity. This is the day of salvation. God will hold this world accountable. As Peter wrote very clearly, the promises of God are not slack, but he desires that all will come to repentance. This is his grace that we see. This is his long-suffering. This isn't his uh, condoning the actions of wickedness. This is not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing is his long-suffering, his patience, desiring that all come to repentance, as Peter writes to us. 
You don't think God grieves at what he sees? He sees everything. We only see that which is revealed to us. And what is revealed to us is bad enough in and of itself, isn't it? He sees everything. He sees those individuals that are alone and persecuted. He sees those individuals that have been mistreated and abused by those who supposedly were to love them. He sees the injustice. He sees the wickedness and the unrighteousness. And his long-suffering is so... I, I don't understand it. I can't, I can't grasp it. But because he knows that eternal judgment is so severe, he waits patiently. But one day that'll end. He'll return for his church. And they'll plunge the world into a time like we've never seen before outlined for us in Revelation 9 through 19. He says, now is the time to get saved. Now is the time to embrace Christ. For he truly will satisfy the poor. He will truly set at liberty the captives, open the eyes that are blind, and release those who are oppressed.